0: Wow, that was beautiful. Uh, I'm up here to introduce our storyteller for the day, Ryan Labrie. Ryan, where are you? There you are. Here's my favorite thing about Ryan. I uh, really get a strong sense from him that he lives life as a called person. He has a sense of purpose. He's deliberate and conscientious in the way he moves. And uh, he likes to think about things and nerd out and really get down to the bottom of things. I love that about him. Uh, But he does all that sort of in this quiet, half-French, half-Scandinavian sort of way. And uh, he can also, in that gentleness, be really direct and frank, which is very East Coast, and I love that. So Ryan, come on up and tell us your story.
1: Well, this is my story. It's really a story about family. My faith began by being involved in Young Life in high school. I made the choice to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at Young Life's Malibu Club in Canada during the summer after high school graduation. I went to Malibu for all the wrong reasons. I went there to chase girls, I wanted to do all the fun activities, but God used it to change my life and I came home committed to Jesus. As a conversation starter in my uh, dorm room at SPU, I had a poster that said, babes plus water skiing equals Christ. In 1986, I entered Seattle Pacific University as a freshman and it was a wonderful environment to nurture my newfound faith. Having little to no previous understanding of the Bible or practices of Christianity, I fully immersed myself into SPU's vibrant Christian community. I loved every Bible and theology class I ever took. I actively participated in small group discipleship groups, uh, eventually becoming a student leader in both the ministries program and the residence life program. Regardless of discipline, I found the lessons from faculty of faith incredibly stimulating. Two of the greatest Christian mentors I have ever had in my life were the Dean of the Sciences and the Dean of the School of Business, both who taught me you could be a person of science or a person of business and still be a Christian. Perhaps the most important commitment I made while I was at SPU was to grow my hair long out like Jesus. Okay, perhaps that wasn't the most important commitment I made. Maybe this one was the most important commitment. While working for SPU up at Camp Casey on Woodby Island, I met Jennifer the summer before her freshman year. Even before we were married, Jennifer's impact on my Christian walk in those early years was instrumental in the man that I am today. Jennifer and I were married 25 years ago. Notice by that time I had gotten a haircut and a job. And during those early years of marriage, Jennifer and I grew strong in our faith under the tutelage of Lucy and Dennis Guernsey. Dr. Guernsey was an internationally known Christian marriage and family therapist that just so happened to move from Southern California to SPU to start the fledgling MFT program. Our young married Sunday school class became a family. Of the original five couples in that class, four of the families still live in the area and meet together regularly. It has been a blessing to support each other as moves, job changes, health issues, and children have entered our lives. Nine Christian children have been raised by these four couples, five Have completed college, and four are in college, and four are still in high school. Our Alex being the youngest one, and the first wedding of these kids took place this past summer. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received from one of my pastors was that you do not just marry into, or you do not just marry an individual, but you marry into a family. And I must say that I married into the best family in the world. Jennifer's family roots go deep here at M I C C, or should I say E C C. Some of you older generations might remember that Jim and Ruth Troll, longtime members here. I consider my father-in-law, Raymond Straub, who's in the audience today, and my uncle-in-law, if that's a thing, Jim Troll, to be two of the most faithful and godly men in my life. When it comes to family, I definitely married up. After a decade spent at Microsoft in a variety of roles, in 2000, Jennifer I and a 10-month-old Rachel moved to Phoenix, Arizona for my PhD studies. This was a major change for Jennifer and I, as we had both grown up in Washington, only gone to one school, and I had only known one employer. I left Microsoft to do what I believe was a calling from God. I knew way back in 1988 as an undergraduate student that I wanted to be a professor at a Christian university. It only took me 16 years to realize that dream. However, I almost quit the first semester of doctoral studies. Not because the work was too tough, I was accustomed to putting long hours in at Microsoft. I almost quit out of the frustration of the stifling bureaucracy of academia. Even though I was able to interact with incredibly smart faculty members, the bureaucracy and pace of decision making was truly challenging. Something that would have taken one phone call and five minutes to fix at Microsoft took three months to resolve at ASU. (laughs) During that time, my father-in-law, Ray, once again stepped in and offered me some perspective. He told me a PhD doesn't make you or, or mean that you're any smarter than anyone else. It just means that you persevered longer. He encouraged me to keep my eye on the prize and to remember why and whom I was doing this for. Once again, a sagely advice that I really appreciated from a family member in a critical time of my life. In 2004, we moved back to Mercer Island, began to attend another church on the island. At this previous church, Jennifer and I got heavily involved, or Jennifer got heavily involved um, with their preschool, serving on their board as she had done at our Phoenix church. As the children got older, our whole family was involved with their Logos after-school program for families of elementary school children. Jennifer and I served as deacons there. I led a few Bible studies, and we served a number of times at the breakfast service. I was also involved with a business professional's monthly Bible study. While that season was great for our children's development and for Jennifer and I to serve, we felt like we were giving a lot but not necessarily receiving the spiritual development that we craved. After trying a couple other churches, we decided to come to Evergreen, a couple months prior to Peter's arrival. And do you want to know a secret? I'll tell you the single biggest factor for us coming, Julie Steele. You see, Julie had taught, yeah, go ahead. You see, Julie had taught confirmation classes for all four of the Boyd and Troll cousins of Rachel and Alex. We were so pleased in watching those young people's faith grow that we wanted that for our kids. If you've been around church for the last several years, you've watched both our kids complete the confirmation course under Julie's guidance. Jennifer and I couldn't be just a second more proud of our children for completing this milestone, something I never got to experience as a young person. I'd like to close with one more chapter of my faith development that happened because of this church community. This story once again involves the ministry of my family members to me specifically Alexander and Rachel. This past summer, I was blessed to be able to serve as one of the adult chaperones on the Guatemala mission trip to the Nicholas Christian School. What an incredible ministry. Church, great things are happening in Guatemala, and in part because of your and our involvement with NFE. I'm nearly 50 years old, and I've never been on a mission trip before. While I am sure that many of our high school's youth lives were changed in meaningful ways forever, I'm here to tell you that my life was changed forever as well. Helping our youth teach lessons at the school was amazing, yes. Getting their computer systems operational with Microsoft Office was truly a tangible blessing for the school. However, watching Rachel and Alexander and their 11 peers, your kids, live and love, share and give, work and play, sing and pray with fellow Christians in the remote highlands of Guatemala, serving the underserved native Ashil people, that's priceless and life-changing." The most impactful event of the whole trip was after we were done teaching in one of the schools in a remote village. We were invited to visit some homes. When I say homes, what I want you to picture is a 10 by 10 cinder block building, dirt floors, corrugated metal roof with no electricity, maybe with a door, maybe not. And in one of those homes, Pastor Brent laid hands on an elderly woman who was going blind. To make matters worse, this woman was the sole provider for her grandson. Her grandson would get up very early in the morning, I'm told 4 a.m., work the fields, go to school all day, come home traveling one to one and a half hours each way, work the fields after school until dark, and then he would come home and do his homework by candlelight, not at a desk or a table, but sitting on a cinder block used as a chair in his nearly blind grandmother's home. After Brent's very powerful prayer, she gave thanks and blessed us. Can you believe that? She blessed us. Then our youth spontaneously broke out into singing. Ten thousand reasons, bless the Lord, O my soul. That day I saw the most pure form. Excuse me. That day I saw the most pure form of Christianity I had ever experienced. Young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, okay, Guatemalan and American, loving thy neighbor as themselves. To this day, I cannot sing 10,000 Reasons in Church without recalling that day and crying my eyes out, as you can see. So, Katie, as a request from my children who will just get embarrassed by me crying in church, if you could keep that one off the rotation for a while, that'd be great. (laughs) Just kidding. I love that song, but I will cry. To close, I'd like to say that my Christian journey continues. As an educator, I am a firm believer and practitioner in lifelong learning. I'm so thankful that Evergreen Covenant Church is a place that I could receive spiritual nourishment as well as give back in service, even if in only small ways. As a university professor, I pour my heart, mind, and soul into my work in developing graduates of competence and character to go out and engage the culture and change the world for Jesus. I often come to church drained. You all provide a place where not just I, but my whole family can serve and be fed. We are proud to call this church home, community and family. I look forward to continuing growing further in my walk with Christ with the help of my family. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from John chapter 18 in the New International Version. John 18, starting with verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, and so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, "'I am not.'" One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, "'Didn't I see you with him in the garden?' Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' "'Is that your own idea?' Jesus asked, "'Or did others talk to you about me?' "'Am I a Jew?' Pilate replied." listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate? And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you for your story this morning. And um, I didn't realize we had something in common, but uh, you said that Julie Steele was the reason you're at this church. Julie Steele's the reason I'm at this church, too, so I don't know if you... <laughs> You got that? We, we, we got that connection there um, for different reasons, I think. Um, but yes, this is uh, Christ the King Sunday, which in the church calendar kind of ends the church year, and then starting with Advent next week, we begin the new church calendar, uh, which leads up to the birth uh, of Jesus, and uh, speaking of that, oh, yeah, we got another little baby steel coming, and in May or June, yeah, thank you. I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of start us off with this because now you guys are, I feel like you're on my side, you're wanting me to do well. It's kind of some low hanging fruit to get you, um, you know, so if this doesn't go well, at least, you know, just know, you know, my wife's in, in the first trimester or just out of the first trimester and we've been dealing with all that, which by the way, um, for, for you mothers out there, if you had an easy pregnancy, please don't talk to my wife about that. Um, it's not been morning sickness. It's been morning, afternoon, evening sickness, right? So we're, we're, we're looking forward to uh, hopefully this baby being awesome because it's taken a toll on uh, my wife for sure. Um, but um, I was thinking about Christ the King Sunday, and I, I was thinking about my own time back in seminary. My first year in seminary, I had a roommate named Yasu. Yasu was from Japan, and he was really a a well-disciplined student, he was very thoughtful, he was a great roommate, he would clean up my dishes when I was too lazy or tired to do them, Um, very respectful. And Yasu uh, carried over a lot of his practices from Japan, so I got to learn a lot about that, too, as well. Um, Not only the Japanese food he ate, um, he slept on the floor on just a small mat, which was great, because the school only provided one bed for the apartment, so I got the bed, thankfully. but another practice that Yasu would do often was, was bowing, and uh, you know, being the kind of proud and brash person that I am, I say Yasu, I bow to no man. You know, um, something about bowing just kind of rubs me the wrong way, or at least did. And, and it probably has a lot to do with the fact that I'm American and you know, the Revolutionary War we fought to get rid of a king. You know, I'm not going to bow to somebody because that feels too much like royalty and all that stuff that we threw off back in 1776. And so, for some of us, when we hear Christ the King, maybe that has a similar feel. Or, why is Christ a King? Aren't kings just kind of trumped up tyrants, uh, people with an ego trip and too much power? But Christ is not ultimately accused of being the president of the Jews, and he's not the CEO of the Jews. He's charged with being the King of the Jews. As I said, this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. and um, So we remember, as we close off this year in the church calendar, what does it mean that Christ is actually a king? King of what exactly? King of who? You know, we think about these different uh, global uh, and geopolitical issues going on, the different leaderships involved. If Christ is really king, where does his authority lie? And if you say you follow Christ as king, what exactly are you claiming? And how does Christ's kingdom compare to the kingdoms and empires and countries of this world? What we see here in in these selected readings of John and actually throughout the entire chapter of John 18 is this is the scene that's setting up Jesus' crucifixion. It begins in the garden just after the Last Supper. And it ends with Jesus on trial in front of Pilate being handed over to eventually be crucified. And yet it's in this section of John's gospel that I think the writer makes Jesus' claim to be king most explicit. But obviously it's done in a way that is not expected in in that day's powers, nor in our own. We wouldn't recognize somebody who's being tried And persecuted and eventually crucified as having some kind of royal authority. But what we see in John's gospel are a clash between two types or two claims at authority. The first we see is a claim to authority through power and coercion, through the strength of might, and this is best seen through the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar had taken. Rome from a republic into an empire, invading, dividing, conquering different people groups throughout Europe and the Mediterranean area. He did this with skilled soldiers, engineering feats, and human ingenuity. All the things that you would want if you were trying to take over the world. This Pax Romana that, that Caesar introduced, this peace of Rome, comes at the death of thousands, if not millions. And the soldiers come to Jesus to arrest him armed for battle, ready to use this force of coercion and threat of violence and intimidation to get people to do what they want. To this, to this day, this standard, this is, I would assume, the standard assumption of what authority really is, or the power, at least power. If you can overpower or you can subdue your, your opponent or your foe, that demonstrates you have power over them or authority. If you can get them to do what you want, that demonstrates that you have some kind of uh, strength. Jesus' own disciple Peter falls into this very notion. As Jesus is coming to be arrested, Peter grabs a sword to defend his master, cuts off the ear of a, of a servant who was with the Roman uh, soldiers, but Jesus ultimately rejects this use of force, stops Peter from it, using it further, and heals the person who's been wounded. The other depiction of power is seen through the very life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Throughout Jesus' life, he demonstrates true authority over nature, through calming storms, changing water into wine, multiplying food for the hungry. He shows his authority over sickness, over evil, and even over death. when he heals the blind, when he casts out demons, and when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But his power is not demonstrated by soldiers, nor by conquering new territories and establishing borders, or even some kind of efficiently strategized master growth plan. Jesus didn't have any business consultants giving him input on who the best candidates to follow him were. He didn't take out an ad in Zip recruiter or something like that. And in this way, Christ as a king seems rather strange to us. He doesn't use any of the tools or mechanisms that we would use if we wanted to build up something that we consider strong. Think about the own, our own founding of our nation. Some of the most educated and brilliant men of that day come together in the Continental Congress to argue and debate and discuss what it takes to establish a more just and perfect society, one that doesn't have a king, apparently. This cannot be said uh, for Jesus and his strategy for building up his kingdom. As he calls a handful of of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners, Jesus uses the foolish things of this world to establish his eternal wisdom. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not established by force or usurpation, but by his essence, by his nature. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus. He says, Christ, who being in the very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Christ, by his nature, has the authority over everything, and so therefore is king. You see, the difference between a king and a tyrant is simply this, the legitimacy of power. As God was one who made the world... It was his to govern accordingly. A tyrant, however, is one who tries to grasp power for himself and use it to his own advantage. The difference becomes obvious because the tyrant can only use intimidation, force, and violence to get what he wants. This is precisely because the tyrant is not naturally the one who has authority. Notice that Christ accepts the will of the soldiers to be arrested, to be handed over, to be tried. He goes before a trumped-up religious court by the Jewish leaders and eventually handed over to Pilate to be sentenced to death. As Pilate questions Jesus, trying to assess the threat level that Jesus is to the Roman Empire, asking if he is an actual king, Christ responds with, "'My kingdom is not of this world.'" The fact that Christ's kingdom is not from this world should be no surprise to those who have read the Gospels or follow him. Jesus' royal birth announcement it comes in the form of a humble, na- uh, humble manger. His subjects are, by large, uh, in large part, uneducated, riffraffed, many of them outcasts and losers by the day's standards. He doesn't have a palace to live in, let alone a place to, live it, to lay his head at night. When he is brought to trial in this passage, he doesn't make any claim that as, a, as some kind of king he should be immune from these proceedings or that he is the one who should be actually putting others on trial. His kingdom, in fact, is marked by service, washing the very feet of those who would betray and deny him later on that evening. Christ rules through sinful, broken, fragile people which leads to the second main issue here in John 18. If that's the type of authority that Jesus uses, who are those among him, who are those who are in his kingdom? If Christ's authority is by his nature and essence, and that authority is not exerted through coercion or force, then who is it that exactly is part of this kingdom? John beautifully weaves together these two juxtaposition images in John 18, one where Christ is being revealed as king through suffering, and one of his most prominent subjects, Peter, having a significant failing at a crucial moment. While Christ is on trial being abused and mocked, it is at this moment that Peter falls away. Peter, having used bold language earlier and bolder actions with the sword in that evening, promised to be with Jesus until the bitter end. And yet, now he cowers in front of those who had accused him of simply being with Jesus. And these people accusing Peter are not strong, intimidating soldiers. They're not kings or emperors themselves. They're not some kind of judicial court. Peter melts in front of a slave girl and a servant boy. Peter loses his courage to two people who would seem to have the least amount of authority or, or importance in a story like this. This Peter, this man who has given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, is now crumbling. And it is at this, this hour when Christ's kingdom seems to be falling apart, seems to be at its weakest. He refuses to allow his subjects to defend him with a sword. His closest friends fall away and betray him. He appears to accept these unjust claims about him. He is mistreated, humiliated. And when it appears to have no recourse, no retaliation, no response at all, this is the moment when Christ's kingdom is actually at its most powerful it's most victorious. Christ's kingdom is inaugurated through weakness and ultimately his own death. Meanwhile, his followers have abandoned him. And this Peter, this man who Christ would build his church upon, would have to lead the church continually from this day forward, knowing that he had fallen short of his master when he needed him the most. It makes me think that Peter's cowardice would have been well known among his disciples and colleagues, and as he was establishing that church. Think about Peter having to get up and preach in Acts about the boldness of Christ's victory on the cross and resurrection while knowing that he had abandoned Christ during that very moment. As if Peter, who is supposed to be one of the leaders of this movement, is himself a failure. This is not a, a great PR move by the early Christians, and it's certainly not a great leadership strategy, I would say by most people's estimation, to have one of your key founding members be one of the ones who, at the most crucial moment, demonstrated his cowardice and weakness. I have to imagine to an extent that that was not only self-conscious on his mind, but also his peers, thinking, man, if, if Peter wasn't here, he, his cowardice and his His actions, they give us a bad name. How many of us have ever felt that way? That those who claim to be following Christ feel like they're giving us, the good Christians, a bad name? I was at a a Mariners game uh, two summers ago with my cousin. It was actually the... This, the day that they were retiring King Griffey Jr.'s number, so the crowds were 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 staggering. We we're all waiting to get into the, the ballpark, and, and sure enough, there was a you know preacher bullhorn guy down there with his sign about hell and fire and brimstone, and you all need to repent. And I'm standing there trying to have a good conversation with my cousin who uh, grew up in the church but isn't really a, a, a attending a church uh, right now, and, and I don't know where he'd say he's on his walk. But all I could think of is this bullhorn guy. This bullhorn guy, just shut up. You're giving us all a bad name. Just go somewhere else. Maybe for you, it's uh, the headline of of another pastor embezzling money from his church or a televangelist having a sex scandal. But I'm sure I'm not the only one here who's ever felt like there has been somebody claiming to follow Jesus who's given the rest of us a bad name. But here's my point. When we go back and look at Christ the King, we see this uncomfortable tension. The future of the head of the church, Peter, Jesus' star pupil, cowers and fails, and yet the story goes on. The story of Christ, the story of the kingdom of God, isn't necessarily built on our own excellence or coming through in the clutch, its foundation isn't in those who have their acts together all the time, or even most of the time. It's not built on people who are sure-handed, virtuous or even honorable. Unlike a sports team or a business where you're only as strong as your weakest link, Christ's kingdom and Christ as king is strong because of its weak links. The story of the gospel and Christ's kingdom is one that says, you are the weakest link. Welcome. Look around you. We are a broken and hurt people. We've made bad, unloving decisions. We can be two-faced and arrogant. And we have all kinds of disordered loves. And yet the gospel and Christ's kingship isn't dependent upon that at all. The crucifixion of Christ highlights this as Jesus hangs exposed, humiliated on a cross, a shameful symbol of a common criminal. Yet it is here that he is raised up and exalted as king of the cosmos. You see, the kingdom of God isn't dependent on the weakest link, the way a modern kingdom or business might be. And so Peter can come back after that failure and Christ restore him. And Peter can go on to proclaim to a group of Christians in his letter, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. A professor of mine told me a story of an ancient church father who once said, a Christian, when asked of what a Christian is, he responded, a Christian is someone who falls down and gets back up, and falls down and gets back up, and falls down and gets back up. Thanks be to a God whose kingdom is established despite my own faults and failures, and that because of it, there is room for those of us who are weak Petty and poor and broken in his kingdom. Amen.